I tell you what, let me pray for us and then, uh, and then I'll, I'll speak to that for a second. And it'll be a good introduction to our text. Father, uh, thank you so much. As, as Brandy was saying, um, just the, the temptation, um, the temptation, yeah, to, uh, to feel ourselves, to see our sin, to see our daily sin, and to see that as more significant than Christ and, um, and live as though that's all there were um, about us. Lord, that's a that's a common temptation. It's a common temptation when the when the body of Christ is gathering um, for any number of things to get in the way. And so we do thank you for bringing us here today, and um, we thank you for uh, for bringing us to a place where we can hear truth. And so thank you as well for for Anne reminding us that in Christ we are the righteousness of God in Him. And so uh, would you help us, Lord, as we uh, as we think together this morning and. Um, yeah, and think on your word. Would you, Holy Spirit, would you come and direct us? Um, we know that Christ has died. Christ is risen. Uh, Christ will come again. And until then, he has poured out his spirit upon his church to equip us, to help us to know ourselves loved. And so would you, uh, would you guide us as we think and, uh, and dig into these things today? We ask it in your name. Amen. So the question, and that you're, uh, that you, you are, you are spot on. We are, we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. Amen. Uh, all who are in Christ are a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. He made. Uh, this is Second Corinthians five twenty one. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ, which is our right now reality. Okay. So we have what 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 we call the position, an immovable position in Christ, that we've been raised up with Him, we've been seated with Him at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is Ephesians 2. So, we have a positional reality that does not change based upon our circumstances, and we have circumstances that undulate. We have times where our circumstances uh, would, would maybe tempt us to see... Uh, a different reality than what God says about us. Great example of this is is Jesus coming up out of the waters of baptism. The Father says, "You are my Son; in you I am well pleased." He goes right out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and the first thing that Satan says to him is, "If you are the Son of God," so he directly contradiction contradicts the the word of the Father about the identity of Christ. And so Satan is always condemning. Uh, if the Holy Spirit is convicting of sin, you guys know, right, the difference between conviction and condemnation, right? Condemnation is, man, you are the worst. Conviction is when you spoke that way to your husband, when you spoke that way to your wife, when you believe that, that's a sin and you need to repent. The Holy Spirit brings cut like a surgeon. Uh, Satan brings wound like a butcher. Does that make sense? So, the answer is our position in Christ never ever changes and and maturity as we mature in Christ maturity means walking more and more in everything that we already are in Christ so um, anyway I don't know if that if that answers but um, but that's uh, that's how I would respond so okay we it's Mother's Day happy Mother's Day everybody we um, being that it's Mother's Day um, and being that uh, I have done this for the last, like, I don't know, five or six years, 
I'm going to give a word of exhortation to our men, all that are here and all that are not here. Um, and so, uh, so mothers, uh, happy Mother's Day. The idea is that, um, yeah, by speaking to our men, that we would, uh, that we would um, be able to rise up and be a great, a greater blessing to you as our brides. So, um, so I have a smattering of things, exhortations that I want to make to our men and to our young men. And um, yeah, and so here they are. First off, um, this world is a brutal place and therefore Christians cannot be nice guys. Okay? The world is a brutal place and Christians cannot be and must not be nice guys. Um, I heard a story recently of a Christian teenage girl, Christian parents, Christian home, Christian church, super active, and she got asked to go to a, um, a Christian camp and serve as a Christian counselor at a Christian camp. And so she goes to this Christian camp as a Christian, serving with Christians, um, and she was raped by a servant of the enemy masquerading as a Christian counselor. Um, and adding insult to injury, she, she gets home and discovers that she now has a lifetime uh, to deal with herpes. And um, I heard this, I heard this story, and I asked, like, what, what happened? Like, what did, the, what did the dad do, right? Was there bloodshed? Was there, like, what happened? And the answer was nothing. Nothing. The dad didn't do anything. And he didn't do anything for any number of reasons. You hear the justifications of like people not wanting to bring shame upon the name of Christ and, and all of these things. And so doesn't know what to do. Cops were not called. Cal, uh, the, the camp was not called. This person was not outed. The dad did absolutely nothing, which was a very nice thing to do. Another story of... Um, a young man who was um, at a uh, at an evangelistic um, what do they call those revival, right? A traveling evangelist in scare quotes molested him as a young man in uh, in the church, and um, when he did the fantastically courageous thing to go tell his dad, "This is what happened to me," to to swallow his shame and to swallow all of that, and to go to his dad and plea for help and his dad did absolutely nothing because he didn't want to bring shame upon the name of Christ by bringing light to sin in our midst um, which was a very nice thing to do to the man that is molesting people probably still today so long as he is still coming across a bunch of Christian nice men the reason I'm saying this is because we have, for some satanic reason, we have exalted the, um, the we, we call it a virtue of niceness. Like, we want to be nice little boys. We want to raise nice little boys. We say to boys, don't do that. That's not nice. And so, we have this, we have this confusion about the difference between niceness and kindness. So, can I give you a... Um, let me give you a, a definition between the difference and then I'll kind of show you how to, how to think through these things. First off, niceness is a subjective doing of what would please the other person. 
what would please you, that's what I'll do and that'll be really nice. Just whatever makes you happy subjectively. Now, whatever makes you happy might be to provide you uh, sinful things or, or any number of things. It's subjective. It's whatever makes you happy. That's the virtue of niceness. Kindness, on the other hand, is objectively doing what will please God and be eternally good for you. Okay? So I have to take into account not just what you want, but what God wants and what will be eternally good for you. Okay. So a good, um, a good litmus, litmus test for virtue is to ask the question, was Christ that 24-7? So let me ask you, was Christ, was Jesus nice 24-7? Um, do you guys remember what he called Herod? He called him Herod the Fox. Do you remember that he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones? Do you remember that he called them a brood of vipers? Do you remember that when James and John um, heard some guys that they didn't quite like, they asked Jesus if they could call down fire from heaven and zap them, and so he nicknamed them Sons of Thunder. Jesus was a name-caller. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Do you know what Jesus nicknames him in the next uh, paragraph? When, when Peter says, no, you'll never go to the cross. He says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus is a name-caller because name-calling is kind. It's not nice, but it's kind. I can imagine Jesus growing up in some of the Sunday school classes that I sat in full of really nice old ladies wanting to raise up really nice young men and twisting his ear and saying, now, Jesus, we don't call names, right? Well, Jesus is our model. He is what we imitate, not um, anything else, okay? So we, listen, we live in a brutal world where women are raped, where babies are murdered, where slaves are made, where money is stolen, where tyrants rise to power, and for some ungodly reason, the church has embraced niceness as the key virtue. We have to kill that idea. We cannot be nice. We have to be kind if we're going to be anything. So, in the name of Christ and in the shadow of, of a great meme I saw one time, gentlemen, go buy a sword, name it kindness. And then kill them with kindness. All right? The world is brutal. Don't be nice. Secondly, manhood is a very high calling that you and I cannot perform. Okay? It's a very high calling that you and I cannot uh, perform. I don't know if you guys uh, were listening very close when Trey read you these words. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Jesus is our model of love. Uh, to wives, he said, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So these two very hard, very high callings. Um, and so let me ask you, men, how sufficient do you feel at that? To love your wives as Christ loved the church, and to give himself up for her, to sanctify her. Uh, are we feeling very small yet? The answer is yes. Okay, so here's what happens. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that God created marriage to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And so that relationship, it looks like this. The church was sinful, rebellious against God. Christ 
initiated in love, came, died, gave himself to sanctify his bride. And that he wins her back from death, from condemnation, from sin. She respectfully responds to him and loves him. Okay? So it's this loving pursuit and this respectful receptivity. Now, in a marriage, the way it's supposed to look is that a husband would love and a wife would receive and respect and that it would be this glorious building up of one another. The wife built up as she feels loved, even in her worst moments. Uh, The husband built up as he feels respected, even when he is not so respectable. And so there's this building up. And this is the genius of Paul's words in Ephesians 5. But let me describe a situation that often happens in marriage. I've never seen this before. So I'm just uh, going on notes here from someone else. But what happens on occasion is a husband will feel disrespected. And therefore, he will not love. And a wife will feel unloved. And therefore, she won't respect. And so this this um, glorious intention of God that love and respect and love and respect would build us up in the image of Christ. The very opposite happens where uh, disrespect, unloved, disrespect, unloved, and it's a cycle that's going down. It's like when you pull the plug in your bath and it starts to and suck down all the nasty. So the question is, if that's a scenario that you um, are in, have been in, know what I'm talking about, um, How do you get out of the downward cycle of the husband's feeling disrespected, the wife is feeling unloved, and so, by the way, typically what will happen in that scenario is the the husband, instead of loving his wife, will actually respect his wife, and the wife, instead of respecting her husband, will actually love him. And so we're giving the other what we want, but it's not what the other needs, okay? The question, as we're going down into this, In a downward spiral, who must initiate the change? The answer is the husband, because he corresponds to Christ, who initiated this relationship. Remember, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the husband. Now, back to our insufficiency, men. How well are you, how good are you at loving when you feel really disrespected? Not very good. So, follow-up question. Where can a disrespected man find the courage and wisdom and desire to love his wife like Christ loved the church? The answer is, as Miss Anne pointed out before we got going, it's our identity in Christ. It's who we are in, in Christ. That when we feel disrespected by our wife, ladies, in case you don't know this, God has wired it, wired the universe, to... Um, to the end that you are to be a sweet influence on your husband. And so if there's a lot of disrespect, he's going to get that and that's going to that's going to taint sort of his identity in Christ. He's going to see himself as you see himself. Does that make sense to you? He shouldn't. He should always see himself the way Christ sees him, the way the Father sees him, the way the Spirit is in him. But the reality is when a wife is disrespectful, uh, that's another uh, lying voice that he'll take to the bank. And so, men, when that's the case, you have to turn back to, to the fact that the Father loves you, that you have an identity in Christ, that you're not an orphan, and most importantly, probably, that you have the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Um, see if you can see if you can uh, complete this sentence. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. But be filled with what? The Spirit. Yes. Be uh, in Greek. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. That is directly before the command for wives to submit to their husbands, for husbands to love their wives. Be being filled with the Spirit. You cannot do this in your flesh. It has to be in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, gentlemen, we have to rise up in light of this great calling that God has placed upon us to love our wives as Christ loved the church. We have to rise up to dependent action. Dependent action. Not respond in our flesh, but to rise up to dependent action. Do something. Don't go quiet into the despairing night. Do something in the power of the Spirit. Love your wife. So manhood is a high calling that you cannot perform. So walk in the power of the Spirit. Thirdly, you must love your wives. A wise woman once said this to me. You must love your wife, especially in those times when she wants to be respected. You have to love your wives in the moments where they really want you to respect them. Okay? Our culture commands a woman to go out and seize respect. Be the CEO. Uh, break the glass ceiling. Don't let anybody tell you that you can't do something. We watched Moana, and her dad is saying, no, 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 uh, hemming her in, hemming her in, just like um, Little Mermaid and just like Frozen. She's just hemmed in, and so she becomes herself when she lets it go, and she gets after being her own boss, right? We, um, Eli and I were driving. I know you guys have probably seen it on uh, Business 71 in LaGrange, in LaGrange. In front of Walmart, there's two billboards. Have y'all seen them? There's a there's a lady. Uh, is she a Muslim lady? I can't remember. She's um, okay. Well, the the caption. So the picture of this lady, and the caption reads, um, "Women should study and make history." Now, I was really proud of my son because he looked up there and he saw it twice. I mean, right on top of each other. And one, he was like, what a waste of money that <laughs> you would advertise twice. Um, but two, he said, shouldn't everybody study history? I mean, really? Shouldn't everybody study and make history? And the answer is yes. It's not that women shouldn't study and make history. But think about this for a moment. What if we paid for a billboard to say men should study and make history? It would be burned. You'd be tarred and feathered. You see little girls walking around with, uh, with T-shirts. I saw one in a church one time that said, women are the future. And I thought, it's, it's kind of amazing that nobody's rebuked her for that. Because I can guarantee you, if a young man came wearing a T-shirt saying, men are the future, he'd get rebuked. You can't, you can't say that. It's, it's demeaning to women. Well, what about demeaning to men? Okay, so... Brothers, you have to love your wives, especially in those times when she wants to be respected. And we live in a culture that, that tells her that respect is what she needs. The scriptures describe Eve's desire as a rule. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. As a response to sin, there's going to be this insatiable desire to dominate, to, to rise up. Um, that is a product of the fall. It's the product of sinfulness. So, 
Brothers, God has told you what your wife needs from you, and it's love. Okay? So, what is love? Christ-like love. It's self-giving. Okay? Love has to be self-giving, that Christ gave himself up for us. Now, really quick. Self-giving, in order to self-give, you have to prioritize your family. Okay? Um, Wives, can I say an aside here? Uh, Your husband is commanded to know, protect, lead, and feed his family, to shepherd his family. Um, And of those three, to know everybody, to protect everybody, to lead everybody, and to feed everybody. Do you know what one stands out among all of them that's the easiest one that we would gravitate toward? Can you guess it? So it, for me, it would be, it would be feed because I, I love the scripture. Um, and so I, I, I love to talk about these things. But most, I would say most men gravitate toward the one that's measurable. Let me ask you something. Have you discipled your kids enough? I don't know. Where's the ruler for that? Have you provided? The answer is yeah. Is there a roof? Yes. Is there food on the table? Yes. So we've provided. It's typically in our culture, Guys will gravitate towards that as like, that's the thing. I don't, I'm not so good at knowing. I'm not so good at maybe, uh, you know, shepherding my family, but I can protect them. Nobody will harm them and I can provide for them. So a lot of times wives will see and they'll, uh, especially sometimes it's a temptation for wives in the church to say, my husband provides for us well. He protects us well. He knows us really well, but he doesn't really shepherd us very well. And I'm, I would just exhort you, Ladies, to lean into and recognize when he is prioritizing you as best he can in some of those other areas, and he'll rise up to the other ones. But it's self-giving. Love is self-giving. Love is others sanctifying. Christ gave himself up, not just to show an example, but to make his wife holy, to sanctify her. Okay? So this is going to look like correction, washing uh, your wife with the water of the word. So, wives, when your husband comes to you graciously and humbly and says, hey, babe, you're in the wrong. Don't bust his chops. Receive that. He's trying to help you. Sanctify her. It's word saturated. It's instruction. It's instruction in the word. Um, Men, you have to rise up to this. Ladies, it would be really helpful. Um, This is just a kind of an aside, but... um, if you, if you would say, man, I wish my husband would pray for me. Can I give you a strategy, ladies? Um, go ask him to pray for you for a particular thing. Hey, would you pray for me real quick? I'm, I'm anxious. And then pray. Um, it's, not, it's not that you have to pray with your wife for two hours a day or something like that, but a good place to start is, ladies, if you'll say, I want to be prayed for, and so I'm going to go ask would you pray for me right now for this thing that I'm, that I'm walking through? And your husband will do it or the elders will punch him. Okay, so, um, so you have to love your wife, especially when she, need, she thinks that she wants to be respected. You must love her. So endeavor to give your bride what God says she needs, not what she always wants. Okay? Fourthly, I'm nearly done. Be decisive for your wife and for your family. Okay, be decisive. Um, in uncertainty, in, in un- uncertain times like uh, the ones that we're in right now with COVID.
COVID virus and all these things. In uncertainty, um, you need to be El Jefe. You need to be the chief. You need to be decisive. Um, and you need to wear the consequences of the decisions that you made. Um, there's a truism that authority flocks to those who take responsibility. Y'all ever heard this? That authority flocks to those who take responsibility. So let me ask you, in our culture, who is responsible if there's a 13-year-old kid that can't read? In our culture now. In the church, if you have a 13-year-old kid who can't read, we're going to go to the dad and say, hey, man, like, is there, is there a problem? Like, what gives? But in our culture, who is responsible for a kid who cannot read? It's the state. Because the state has taken responsibility, and therefore we've given over authority to educate. Okay? So, um, we need to be, men need to be the type who will take responsibility for our family and then let authority flow there. And we've got to be decisive with that authority. So we were talking about this in elder prayer. I had just gotten through reading Nehemiah. And I said, who's a good example in the scriptures of being decisive and leading well? And Russ said, I think Nehemiah would be a great case study, right? So Nehemiah building the wall around Jerusalem, his priorities that he hears, there's all sorts of material prosperity going on in Persia, but he hears of Jerusalem the walls are torn down and the gates are busted. And so he prioritizes going to build the wall. He's a man of prayer. He's constantly praying. Even mid-sentence prayer, he tells you. He's talking with somebody. And in parentheses, he'll say, Lord, help me. And then he keeps going. So he's, this, he's got great priorities. He's a man of prayer. He's a man of risk. Okay? Nehemiah has boasted to the king of Persia that God protects those who, who honor him. And he'll protect us. And now we've got to go on this long journey with a lot of money and there's bandits along the way. And he says, I was ashamed to ask for help because I had boasted in the Lord. God is our provision. God is our protection. We're boasting in him, but we also want something else to protect us. And he, he wouldn't do it. And so they prayed, they risked. He goes out at night when he gets there, he's going to build the wall. He knows what he's after, but without anybody around, he goes out at night and he observes and inspects everything. Any kind of rust, you said, eyes on target. He puts his, this is what we've got to do. And I've got to know what we've got to do so that I can lead us. He was determined. He was super crafty. Enemies trying to get him in a bunch of different trouble. And he saw through it. Um, he praised those who co-labored. Part of the hardest part of Nehemiah, of reading Nehemiah, if you haven't read it recently, the hardest part is there's a whole bunch of names and a whole bunch of uh, so-and-so with this guy and this guy and this guy and their family built from the sheep gate to the fish gate. And you're going, what, is that? what does that mean? Nehemiah is saying, Trey built the wall this much. And then Russ came and built that section. And Scott came and built that. And he's just saying, the men rose up and they served. So he's praising those who are co-laborers. Okay, All of this decisiveness. So Brothers, God has made you an irreversible head of your house. The buck stops with you, and so you need to take the wheel. You need to decide. You need to, you need to lead. Um, lastly, and I'm nearly done. Lastly, it's never too late to course correct. Okay? It's never too late to course correct. Um, I... Uh, I think this came out Wednesday too. I said something about Trey being a great carpenter and he goes, uh, he goes, well, a great carpenter is, do you remember what you said? Okay. It was profound. Do you remember what he said? 
He goes, a great carpenter is not somebody who doesn't make mistakes. A great carpenter is somebody who can fix them or hide them. Right? I mean, that you can can start to build something and screw it up and go, nah, I can make this this work. Non-carpenters, like myself, know that mistakes are coming, and so what do I do? I just won't build. Easy enough, I won't fail. Right? And so I get to boast in having never failed at carpentry. Is that what we want? Do we want to boast at having never failed to lead our families? Having never failed to lead the church? Have you guys ever failed as elders? Have I ever failed as a pastor? Have we ever failed as dads? Absolutely. As husbands? The definition of a good man is not somebody who doesn't make mistakes, but somebody who will keep on coming. It's a great line from a great Texas Ranger. Uh, evil men don't stand a chance when a good, against a good man who will keep on coming. That's fantastic. Every leader in the Scriptures except for Jesus, every last one blew it. Every one of them. Our job is not to avoid failure, but to avoid quitting, throwing in the towel. As the man said, repent again, believe again, never give up. Um, I'll close with this. In Romans 8, we are told that that the creation was subjected to futility um, and that it groans with longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Brothers, in Christ, you're the saviors of the world. So rise up to it. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, would you grant that our church would be um, packed full of great men. And Lord, I do thank you. I think we are uniquely gifted with some fantastic men. And so I pray that you would build us up We pray, Lord, for our wives, that you would give them Christ-like husbands in and through us. Don't give them some other guy. Make us like Jesus for their sake so that they can feel themselves loved even at their worst and protected and known and fed and led. God, help us to take responsibility and to bear authority well. Would you... Would you enable us to do, um, to be men like Christ? We ask it in his name. Amen. The great difference between the first Adam and the second was their response to brokenness. God called both Adams to account for the current fallenness of the world. The first man reacted with uh, blame and excuse. The woman you gave me. Great idea, right? Blame God, blame the bride. (laughs) Don't blame me. The woman that you gave me. The second man responded with his own blood. My life for hers, Lord. I'll pay the tab. That's manly right there. Jesus gave his body and his blood to and for marvelous purpose. So today, let us remember one of those purposes 
was to clean up a mess that he did not make. He didn't blame, he bought. He didn't condemn, he cleansed. He didn't destroy, he delivered. This is the body and blood of Christ for you. Come receive him, come believe him, come to him and welcome to Christ. Let me pray for us and then I'll explain how we're gonna celebrate communion. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come now. The Father has chosen us in the Son. The Son has lived perfectly, died in our place for our sin and risen from the dead. And Holy Spirit, you have come to take up your residence in us to to impart to us that which Christ has bought. And so we ask you to draw near as we eat and drink in faith. We ask you to help us know ourselves the righteousness of God in Christ. Grant that we would remember him more than we remember ourselves. We ask it in the name of Jesus and for his sin. Amen.